Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Two more great books to look at, Mike, in our series of the books of the prophets, Micah and Nahum. Two quite short books. Is there any connection between them? Yeah, well, they're both prophets in Judah. Remember Judah, the southern half of God's people after the reign of King Solomon. The nation split into two. Ten tribes went off and became Israel in the north, leaving the two tribes in the south that became known as Judah. And we've said previously that just distinguishing where our prophets lie, are they addressing Judah or Israel, is often quite key to understanding them. So Micah and Nahum, both are prophets who are located in Judah, but they're about a century apart. So Micah is somewhere, well, we don't know exactly the date, but prophesying somewhere between 750 to 686 BC and Nahum somewhere between 663 to 612 BC. Well, let's start with Micah. Do we know much about him? We know a little bit. It's funny, isn't it, how... Like for some of these prophets, we know absolutely zilch. Others, we know loads. Micah probably comes somewhere in between the two. The book begins with the words of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. To give it its full name, Moresheth was actually Moresheth Gath. And that was a tiny obscure village in Judah, about 22 miles southwest of Jerusalem, up in the sort of lowlands of uh, Judah. So an obscure little place that God calls him from, and not for the first time will God call someone out of obscurity to be a, a significant player in his purpose. So an insignificant place, but a significant message. Yes, absolutely. His message is, in a sense, there's a lot of overlaps with Isaiah. In fact, Hosea was his contemporary in Israel and Isaiah was his contemporary in Judah. So a very similar message uh, to Isaiah in many ways, the heart of which is God's people have failed to keep the covenant. Now, remember, we said right at the beginning of this bookshelf of books that we were looking at, that one of the main roles of the prophet was not to tell the future. One of their main roles was to call people back to the covenant and keeping that covenant that they'd made with God. And so his prophecy, which is really presented a bit like a barrister in court, bringing the case for the prosecution, is that God's people have failed again and again to keep that covenant with God. And therefore, the curses that were within that covenant for those who didn't keep it will inevitably come upon them. And that means judgment. And yet with God, there's always hope of forgiveness and God will most certainly establish his kingdom. The way this is presented, it's like the people are on trial. Oh, they are. And that's exactly how this book comes across. It, it really is a, a sort of prosecution uh, statement in, in a sense. Chapters one to three outline the judgment 
that both uh, Samaria, an alternative name for Israel in the north, and Jerusalem, the capital of the south, deserve and that God's judgment is coming on both of them for the way that both have behaved. And then there's a little intermission in chapters four and five with some hope. Then it goes back in chapter six to God presenting his case against his people once again. I'll just read you a few verses from chapter six. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Here you are, you're in court. It's an opportunity. The accusation's been made. How are you going to answer this? Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills say, hear what you have to say, uh, and so on. And then uh, he goes on, my people, what have I done to you? Oh, listen to this one. How have I burdened you? Answer me. He is like God as the judge saying, have I burdened you? You know, give me an answer for this. So it really is set out as, as, a, as a case of a barrister in, in court presenting the evidence for the prosecution. What crime have the people committed then? Well, it's very similar to what we saw in Isaiah, that people have become very complacent out of their materialism. At the heart of uh, these prophecies is a challenge for their idolatry, injustice, empty religion. We've come across that theme several times, haven't we, looking through these prophets, how God hates empty religion. There's this passage in chapter 6, verse 6, where Micah says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old, all of which were there, commanded in the law, of course. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Rams, oil, yeah, they were valid offerings. They're there in the law. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Ah, oh, that one definitely wasn't in the law. Children were not to be sacrificed. Israel was very, very different to the nations round about. But here's hyperbole, exaggeration. Shall I give the very best that I could to God? It's really saying. And then this powerful verse from Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And in that sentence, he's summing up the case for the prosecution, that they have not been acting justly, that they have been cheating and stealing from one another. They've not loved mercy. And they've certainly not walked humbly with their God. So religion has taken the place of relationship both with God and with one another. I mean, how insidious is this corruption? How deep-seated in their society is it? Oh, it, it, it's become absolutely pervasive. I think it's become that pervasive that, that they don't even see it. They don't recognise it. They've even got false prophets who are prophesying untruth. He refers to those in, in Chapter 2. Chapter 3, he'll challenge both uh, leaders... And prophets. So 
here's a verse from chapter three. This is what the Lord said. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, if one feeds them, they proclaim peace. And if he doesn't, they prepare to wage war against him. In other words, they were prophesying for payment. They were, oh my goodness, that's probably not the last time that someone's been in the business of serving God to make a good living out of it, is it? And that's what was happening there. So it had become so deep, so ingrained, they, they just didn't see it anymore. Hang on, prophets, hello? You are bringing God's word and you, you are charging people for God's word. Uh, oh, and then you're shaping God's word to sort of give a nice word if they've paid a nice offering and a cursing word if, if they've not. And you leaders aren't leading people well. And, and they just weren't seeing it. They had become so immune to it because it had just become so much a part of their life, this careless way of living towards God and others. How true could that be of us today, to be blind to the truth of it all? Well, I, I think it can be very true for us today, can't it? And the trouble is, you never know what you're blind about. <laughs> and that's why I think all of us need loving, close Christian friends to us who love us enough and whom we love who can tell us the truth when we are missing it. You know, to have at least one or two people whom you've given the right to say, listen, if I start going off track here, would you please tell me? Because I know you love me that much and you will care for me that much that if you tell me, I won't just say, oh, it's just, it's just David, you know, he's, he, he's always negative about me. And it's easy to dismiss things, isn't it? So I think for all of us to have one or two people whom we love and love them and not just so we butter one another up, but, but so we can speak honest truth to one another to ensure that this kind of scenario that Judah had fallen into is not one that we fall into today. I'm also trying to imagine what kind of society it would be if people were doing right and loving mercy and walking humbly with their God. Oh, wow. Where do you begin with that one? But yeah, I mean, it's almost like, imagine for a moment how you think that might look. Interesting that in the United Nations, outside of their building, they, they have a quote from the book of Micah. In chapter four, although Micah brings these words of judgment against people, there's this section in four and five of great hope it's actually focuses around two places chapter four focuses around jerusalem chapter five around bethlehem and in chapter four he sees a day coming when god will so have worked on the hearts of people that they'll want to go up to jerusalem and in chapter four we read many nations will come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. 
Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree. The point of that was that both vines and fig trees took a long time to grow, so he's envisaging a long period of peace and prosperity here. And no one will make them afraid, and all the nations will walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. So what does it look like? It looks a bit like that. Now, Mike is expressing it in the only language that he's got. He sees Jerusalem as the centre of the whole earth. Why? Because God has his throne there, seated upon the wings of the cherubim, on the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple. So he sees people coming up to Jerusalem to meet with God. But how does that affect one another? Disputes have been settled. What do you need a sword anymore for? change it into a, a plough and so on. So he sees when, it's when our relationship with the vertical, with God is truly right, it really should then flow out. Now, how on earth is that ever going to be possible? Well, he gives the answer in chapter five, because I said he focused on two cities in chapter four, on Jerusalem in chapter five, not on a city, but on what was a, a pretty insignificant, obscure place in his time, Bethlehem, huh. uh, when he says, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, that was its district, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He's looking ahead here to Messiah who will come, he prophesies, from Bethlehem. Exactly, of course, where Jesus was born. And he sees that how is chapter four possible? It's only possible when people take hold of chapter five, when they will receive into their hearts this ruler whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. He's looking back here to how Jesus, of course, was with the father from the beginning and he sees how Jesus in verse 4 will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and he will be their peace. He sees how on earth will this be possible for people to live in right relationship with God and with one another to the point where you're not going to need a sword anymore. You can beat it into a plowshare. It will happen through this one who comes from Bethlehem, who will be the one who is our shepherd, the means of our peace, both between God and one another. So as a little side note, like you said at the beginning, he's from an insignificant place, yeah. and Bethlehem was an insignificant place. Yeah, and Jesus, of course, will come from an insignificant place and even when he will move to Nazareth to spend his growing up years there when it's said that we found the Messiah and he comes from Nazareth the answer is Nazareth you know can anything good come from Nazareth and one of the Pharisees will say you know there's no prophet ever come from Nazareth well you know they got that wrong because we've seen in a previous episode one that definitely did. So an encouragement that actually God can use anyone, anywhere, anytime. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 
Bethlehem, insignificant place, in the backwaters, really, a nowhere, a nothing. And yet Micah sees that it's from that insignificant backwater that God would bring his Messiah, the most significant person in human history, who would make it possible for us to come up to the Lord. It's incredible. So, yeah, no one, no place is ever insignificant when God puts his hand on this second book we're going to look at, Nahum, you said that uh, he's also based in, in Judah, in the south. So it's a message, is it, to the people in the south again? Well, he's based in the south and he's prophesying from Judah, but actually his prophecies are not to Judah, but they are to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now, the interesting thing is we've already seen a prophet in a previous episode who was sent to Nineveh, Jonah, of course, and he prophesied and all the people repented. Now, at first sight, Nahum looks like one of those supposed, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible, isn't it? Because here there's no sense of repentance from Nineveh at all. Here, there is nothing but judgment, whereas on Nineveh in Jonah had been nothing but forgiveness and grace. So why is that? Well, it's as simple as this. It's the context. Nahum is prophesying much later, almost a 100 years later than Jonah. And clearly the repentance that had taken place in the hearts of the Ninevites, though it was deep at that time, was pretty short-lived. And it wasn't long, in fact, before they began to turn back to their own gods, turn away from God. And so by the time of Nahum, uh, there are words only of judgment on this nation that is increasing in power and is showing its ferocity in the way that it deals with conquered nations. And Nineveh itself, I mean, you said it's the capital, a very significant city, presumably. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, Nineveh was uh, an amazing city at the time, stood on the banks of the, the river Tigris and about it had been made the capital of Assyria about 700 BC by, uh, by Sennacherib. And when he did that, he started a really extensive building program to sort of renew and expand and extend it. And he constructed extensive city walls and there was this water supply system and canals and so on. He built a beautiful palace and the walls of the palace were all lined with sort of what we call uh, bas-reliefs, low-reliefs, these sort of 3D carvings of the king, both at leisure and at war. And there were huge sculptures and elaborate furnishings. So it was a fabulous city. I mean, it was an incredibly wealthy city and, and it would survive and, until it was destroyed by Babylon in 612 BC, just as Nahum prophesies in this book, because this whole prophecy is about how Nineveh is going to fall. Now, that is crazy at the time. I mean, it's a little bit like, oh, I don't know, sorry for using a, any particular example, but as if I, I were to prophesy, I tell you, the whole of the United States of America will fall by this time next year. You think, oh, come on, Mike, you know, it's the most powerful nation on earth. It's got all those nuclear weapons. There's no one going to attack it because they'd be wiped out. That's what it was like. They saw themselves as the centre of the universe. Absolutely. And they were incredibly 
powerful. I mean, the Assyrian Empire was really, really extensive. And, and so they were pretty complacent. You know, they were, who would attack them? Who, who could possibly undermine them? And yet, Nahum is a prophecy that says, because you have failed to live as God wants you to. You know, because after all, God is not just the God of Israel and Judah. God is the God of the nations. And so he has a right to call them to live rightly too. And, and so in chapter two, we've got this quite graphic picture of Nineveh being attacked and falling. Uh, so he sees this most unlikely event as absolutely happening and has this lovely little phrase where he says, where now is the lion's den? And a lion was one of the symbols of Assyria, lots of carvings of lions uh, in their statues and reliefs there. And the lion, of course, thinks, you know, who can kill the lion? He's the king of the jungle, isn't he? And that's how Assyria felt. But Nahum says, you know, when God moves, where now is the lion's den? And he even has specifics like calling troops to come against them and the river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. And actually that would happen in history. The palace gates would be thrown open to the Babylonian soldiers who were coming and they really just walked in rather than had to fight to take it. So Nahum literally saw the unimaginable. Well, that's what you get when you open up to listen to God, isn't it? Now, clearly these prophets that we've been looking at were very special people and had a special anointing and a special calling for the season that they were in. But God does show them some incredible things. So Nahum here seeing what will happen to Nineveh. But remember, some of them, uh, like Isaiah we've seen, as his flash forwards for hundreds of years, he sees micro detail about the crucifixion of Jesus. If anyone doubts prophecy, read Isaiah 53 and tell me that you don't see Jesus on the cross there. So they do see things and they see things because God has put this gift within them to see it. It, it. It's not some innate ability. It's simply they are opening their hearts and minds to God. And as they do, God is revealing things to them that they are writing down. But the Assyrians in Nineveh, you give me the impression that they were totally convinced that they were invincible. I mean, you know, many a city has been rebuilt over the centuries. What about Nineveh? Nineveh lies under a pile of desert sand today. Archaeologists have discovered it and we've got an awful lot of artifacts from it, which is why we know so much about what a fabulous city it was. But it did fall really never to rise again. You know, God says in chapter three, woe to the city of blood. <laughs> it shed much blood and I am against you, God says in chapter three. And and that's exactly what happens. In fact, the, the whole prophecy ends with these words, O king of Assyria, your shepherds slumber, your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal your wound. Your injury is fatal. And that's exactly what it proved to be. And sure, there are ruins under the desert sand these days. 
But what Nahum said truly came to pass because, you know, this was a nation that thought it was bigger than God. We still have nations like that today, don't we, who feel they can do whatever they like, who are bigger than God. But I think the message that stands out from Nahum is that, you know, it's not just about a prophecy against Assyria. This is a reminder that God is the God of the whole earth, that all the nations are in God's hands, that God calls every nation to be accountable for how it lives. And this book shouts out loud with the fact that God is indeed the God of the whole earth, the God of all the nations, whether they recognize him or not, and has the right to challenge them to live in the way that he wants them to. What about at a personal level, if an individual sets themselves up against God? Well, do you know what? Here's, here's the wonder of the gospel. There, there are people, aren't there still today, individuals who do set themselves up against God and who decide they never want to change because God does give us that gift of choice, that capacity to choose. And if people keep on resisting God and choose to live without God, then they die without God and spend eternity without God. But here's the wonderful thing. The Bible is full of so many people who had set themselves up against God and yet who changed, who heard God's heart appeal. I think, just think of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who, had, who thought he was serving God, but had set himself against Jesus and yet had that encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road and he met the risen Jesus and his life was turned around 180 degrees. Now, it's not always that dramatic for people. But the great message of the Bible is that, you know, we may have set ourselves up against God at some point in our life. We may have resisted him. We may have said he doesn't exist. We may have cursed him. We may have worked against him. And yet, as those seeds start to grow in our heart that maybe there is a God and we start to look and explore and search for him, the great news of the Bible is that there is no one that God is not prepared to accept. Of course, we saw that when we looked at Jonah in the previous century, when the Ninevites had responded and when the king of Nineveh had been ready to change. So wherever we will turn to God, there is always hope. And God is always there as a father with outstretched arms, ready to receive us. And so this short book of Nahum, who has the final word? God definitely has the final word. He did in history, of course, because it won't be long before Assyria is conquered by Babylon and it is no more. And the greatness that was really lies under desert sands, as I said a few moments ago. The book ends with this challenge through Nahum to Assyria, nothing can heal your wound, your injury is fatal. Everyone who hears the news about you claps his hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? And of course, that would have been true in those days. The Assyrian Empire was great. So many people had felt their barbaric cruelty. They were one of the most cruel peoples on earth in warfare. They inflicted pain, injury, torment for the sheer fun of it, and to act as a deterrent to others. But this people who felt they were so invincible ends up with 
Nahum saying, everyone's heard about how you've been overcome. And they clap their hands at your fall. It hadn't happened yet, but the prophet had spoken. God had spoken. And therefore, it most certainly would. So just bringing these two books together, Micah and Nahum, what do you draw out of them for our lives today? I think that God is the God of the whole earth, of every nation, even those that don't acknowledge him. Of course, there are a few nations as such that would acknowledge God as God today, not even Israel would do that because there are many secular Jews in Israel who don't acknowledge God at all. So we're probably thinking of people rather than nations, aren't we, these days? But God is God of everyone and he reaches out to everyone. And both these prophets really have God reaching out to people, calling out to people, letting them know that there is the opportunity to change, to repent, to come to him. But I think both of them also you know, having a solemn warning, and perhaps we don't like to think about this aspect of the Bible very much, but it's there, it's very real, it's very consistent in Old and New Testaments, that for those who ultimately reject God, there is a judgment that's coming. Whether they call themselves God's people, as in Micah, or whether they don't, as in Nahum. But the great thing is, whether we do or whether we don't, God always has his arms wide open to welcome us, receive us, change us, and make us part of his people and draw us into the exciting plan of what he is doing on the earth. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.